I'm going to pray for us as we um, start. Uh, We believe as Christians we need God's help to understand his word. Um, So I'm just going to pray now for God to help me to be clear and help us all to understand what he has to say for us. So would you pray with me? Lord God, we thank you for a new year. Um, Lord, we thank you for another year to to follow you and to know you. Um, And thank you for this special time now where we can gather as your people uh, to hear from your word and have you speak to us. Lord, would you be here? Would you help me to be small and you to be big today, Lord? Um, And would what you have to say to us today um, be clear and um, go straight to our hearts, Lord? Um, Would we be changed today as we look to a year ahead? Um, Would we start with the right attitude towards you and towards ourselves? And would you be shaping us by your word this evening, Lord? Uh, We commit this service to you. Uh, We commit this time to you now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Happy New Year, everybody. Um, I hope you all had a wonderful start to your new year. I had a nice start this morning to my new year. Um, but maybe last night you didn't make it to 12 o'clock. Um, we got there. I feel like it's the first time in a while. I often don't make it to 12 o'clock. And I'm only 26, so I don't know what that says about me. But I hope you all had a wonderful start to the year. Um, and maybe last night you were up... Uh, making a list of New Year's resolutions. We love writing New Year's resolutions, don't we? A chance when we have a new year to set our goals for the year. Maybe you want to join a gym, read more books. Maybe you want to travel more or maybe eat more healthily this year. Um, I made a New Year's resolution last night to read the whole Bible in a year. Um, I'm going to be doing the sheet that's over there on the table. So if any of you want to join me in that, I, I do encourage you to do that. Um, But we love making New Year's resolutions. We look at a new year as a chance to improve ourselves, to better ourselves. We love to say, new year, new me. This is the year I'm going to kick all of the goals. And I don't want to crush your spirits this evening. But I just want to read to you some pretty sad statistics about New Year's resolutions. There was a study done on the success rate of New Year's resolutions a little while ago. And this is what it found. By the end of the first week... Around a quarter of people that made New Year's resolutions have already given up on them or failed. Then by the end of about February, about half of all the people that have made a New Year's resolution have already given it up. They reckon by the end of the year, it's around 9 to 10% of people that made a New Year's resolution actually kept it till the end of the year. About 1 in 10. It's not a good outlook for us. It's not to say that your New Year's resolutions won't come true, but the problem with New Year's resolutions is they depend on us. They depend on our willpower to see them through. And often, I know you probably know, I definitely know, our willpower can fail us. You know, you want to eat more healthily, but there's all that chocolate in the fridge from Christmas, maybe just a little bit, and then before you know it, you failed You know, we have this society that pushes this you-can-do-it kind of attitude, doesn't it? Nike's catchphrase is just do it. If it was just that simple, Nike. We're fed this idea that if you just believe enough, if you believe in yourself, you can achieve anything. And at first glance, if we were listening to the passage that was just read, we might think that Jesus is promoting the same thing. See, Jesus says to his disciples in this passage, nothing will be impossible for you. 
That could be Nike's new catchphrase, couldn't it? Nothing will be impossible for you. As the big sneaker is on the billboard, nothing will be impossible for you. But is that what Jesus is saying here today? Is our life all about having enough willpower and drive to make these achievements, to do it ourselves? Is Nike right? Can we just do it? If we believe in ourselves enough, can we do it? And if we can, why do we keep failing time and time again? Well, hopefully these are the questions that our passage is going to be answering for us today. But before we jump into our passage in Matthew 17, I just want to take a moment to step back and get some context to Matthew. It's been a little while. Um, We've had two weeks outside of Matthew as a church. Um, And if if you're here and you're new for the first time, this might be your first time into Matthew. Um, We've been working through it for a while as a church. But worth stepping back and remembering what the gospel is about and what comes before this passage. So some things to remember about Matthew, that Matthew as a gospel as a whole is kind of known as the Jewish gospel. It's got a lot of Jewish language in it and it's all about the Messiah. Matthew at the very start of his gospel says this gospel is about the Messiah and he gives away the ending by saying Jesus Christ. Matthew's convinced that Jesus is the Messiah and that's what his gospel is all about. And then two weeks ago we heard Dave preach on the end of chapter 16 And there we saw that Peter declared Jesus to be the Messiah. You can look there if you have your Bibles with you. Matthew 16, 16, Simon, Peter answered Jesus. He said, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And this is a really big moment in the gospel. The gospel is all about Jesus being the Messiah. And here it seems like Peter gets it. You are the Messiah, Jesus. But then it seems clear that Peter's view of the Messiah probably isn't quite right. Because Jesus goes on to talk about how him as the Messiah, he is going to be someone who suffers and dies. And more than that, he says that anyone who's going to follow him is going to face the same fate. And if you were paying attention as the verse was read earlier, our verses today, it ends in the same way. See, from Matthew 17, uh, verse 22, you can see it on the outlines or in your Bibles. When they come together in Galilee, Jesus says to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised to life. And the disciples were filled with grief. So the passage that we're looking at today is kind of sandwiched in between these two passages about grief, suffering, and death. But today we're going to see the glory that's right in the middle. You know, if you think about Jesus as a Messiah who just suffered and died, you might have a little view of Jesus. Maybe you only think of Jesus as the baby in a manger from a week ago. But in our passage today, we see a big Jesus. We get a glimpse of Jesus' glory Jesus pulls back the curtains to give his disciples a glimpse into who he truly is. So that's where we begin our passage today in Matthew 17. So if you look there with me to verse 1, I'm just going to read the first few verses for us again. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. 
His face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright light, a bright cloud covered them. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. And there's a lot in those eight verses. It kind of jumps about from one thing to another, and there's a lot to take in. But I want us to notice a few details in these verses. You can see the details as dot points there in your outlines if you have one. And in particular, I want us to notice the echoes that we get of Exodus here. We did Exodus as a church a few months ago, and there's lots of imagery of Moses and the mountain. You'll see that I I labelled this section a mountaintop experience. This is kind of the, the Exodus moment of Matthew. Notice the first thing that we see there. In verse 2, Jesus' face is shining. It's bright, it's shining. What did we see in Exodus? We saw Moses going to speak with God, and when he came back, his face was shining from the glory of God. A sign of Moses being in the very presence of God's glory. Here, Jesus is in the presence of God in a special way. And we can continue to get imagery here in verse 2 of Jesus' white clothes, a depiction of holiness, otherness, and the way that God is always described in the Old Testament as wearing white robes. The disciples see this picture of Jesus, this glowing picture, white robes. He's completely transformed. And then in verse 3, Moses and Elijah show up. And the question is, what are Moses and Elijah doing there on the mountain? And a lot of people have had different ideas about it. One of the most popular ones is that Moses and Elijah represent the law and the prophets, the Old Testament that pointed to Jesus. Moses, the author of the law, and the prophets, Elijah, the greatest of all the prophets. I think that's definitely there. But think also about Exodus and also about one kings, if you know it. See, who was it in the Old Testament that went up onto a mountain to speak with God? Was it not Moses and Elijah? In Exodus, we see Moses go up on the mountain to speak with God. And in one kings, we see Elijah do the same thing on the same mountain. And here in Matthew, we have another mountain. And again, we have Moses and Elijah, but who were they speaking to this time? Look there at verse 3. They appeared, Moses and Elijah, and they were talking with Jesus. When once Moses and Elijah went up the mountain to speak with God, now they stand with a transformed Jesus speaking with Jesus. And the echoes of Exodus continue. In verse 4, there's this weird, Peter loves to jump in. He's always got something to say, Peter. So Peter pipes up and he says, Lord, it's good for us to be here. 
if you wish, I'll put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He's trying to be hospitable. He's trying to take control and go, oh, I know what to do. I'll put up some tents, some shelters for you. But it's weird. Do you ever think, why would Matthew put this in this story? See, Peter's question never really gets answered. He doesn't really get acknowledged by Jesus or Elijah or Moses. No one acknowledges him. He just asks the question and the story continues on. But if we think again about Exodus and we see that Peter here wants to build shelters or tents or literally a tabernacle, we see again a picture of this mountaintop experience, this moment where in Exodus, Moses went up to hear about how he would build a tent for the Lord, how he would build a tabernacle. But then in this instance, Peter wants to build a tent to keep people there, to be in their presence, but he kind of gets ignored and the story moves on. For some reason, there's no need for a tent anymore. Because now something greater than just the glory of the Lord descending on a tent has come. See, if Peter knew what he was looking at, he would know that he was looking at God himself in Jesus. This is Jesus pulling back the curtain and saying, I am him. I am the Lord. And if you're not convinced of this yet, look at verse 5. What shows up on this mountain? A bright cloud that covers over them all. The same thing that showed up on the mountain in Exodus. God's presence in a cloud descends on this mountain. And again, like in Exodus, a voice comes from the cloud. The voice says, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. God speaks from this cloud. If you picture this chaotic scene of Jesus, the glory of God, Peter wanting to build tents, the cloud covers it all and there's this voice, this is my son, in him I am well pleased. The voice confirms who Jesus is and confirms the authority he has. He is my son, listen to him. Just as God did at the baptism of Jesus, he again here confirms Jesus' role as the Messiah the king, but more than that, God with them. And at the end of this crazy scene, fair enough, the disciples are a bit overwhelmed. They're terrified. So they cover their faces, they lay down, and then we hear another voice in the story. There's a voice, and this time it's Jesus. Jesus says, get up, don't be afraid. And when the disciples look, the chaos is cleared, the cloud is gone, Moses and Elijah are no longer there, and who's left? No one except Jesus. This is Jesus' shining moment. This is the moment we get a glimpse into who Jesus truly is. This is the mountaintop experience of Exodus here in Matthew pointing to Jesus as the one and only God here with us. But then do you notice as they come down the mountain, Jesus says something very strange. He tells them in verse 9 to not tell anyone what you've seen 
until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. And that's a very strange thing to say if you've just had your shining moment on top of the mountain. Surely you'd want to tell everybody they've finally seen who Jesus truly is. Tell the world. But no, Jesus says, don't tell anyone what you've just seen. Why on earth would he say this? Well, it's because in Exodus, the climax was the mountaintop. God saved the people of Israel from Egypt to come to the mountain to worship him. And when they got there and God descended, that was the climax of the story. But in Matthew's gospel, there's a different climax. In Jesus' story, this isn't the climax. No, the climax is going to be the cross. And it's going to be when he raises from the dead to show that he has power over death. You can think of it a bit like a movie trailer. This is Jesus' movie trailer. See, a trailer gives you a glimpse of the highs and the lows of the storyline of the movie, but doesn't really give away the plot or exactly how it's going to end. For the disciples, as they look and see this picture of Jesus, it's like a glimpse of what's to come. But it's not the climax itself. The story goes on, and the story ends at the cross. See, Jesus didn't want his ministry to be defined by glory, authority, power, like you see in these verses, because that's the Messiah the world was expecting, wasn't it? This all-powerful, conquering Messiah that would come to to bring back the Jewish nation into power, to, to crush the Romans, but Jesus doesn't want his ministry on earth to be about that. Jesus wants people to remember him for his suffering and for his sacrifice. And that's why he keeps talking about it. He talks about it before this, these verses. He talks about it here in this part of the story and he continues to talk about it at the end of the story. So he tells the disciples, don't tell anyone what you've seen because that's not the thing that I'm about. But he does give them some hints that things are starting to happen. The cogs are starting to turn. The Messiah is here. In verse 11, he speaks about Elijah who needs to come before the Messiah because the disciples ask him about this. And the disciples then understand as Jesus talks that Elijah has already come. They get it. Oh, that was John the Baptist. And they can see that, oh, John the Baptist has come. Okay, you're, okay, something's happening here. The cogs are turning. The story is unfolding. This Messiah is being revealed in Jesus. But then... Again, we get echoes of Exodus as we come down the mountain. See, just as Moses in Exodus, when he came down the mountain, found trouble at the bottom of the mountain, Jesus comes down the mountain and finds trouble. And just like in Exodus, the problem is the people don't have faith. They don't believe. They go astray. At the bottom of a mountain... A man approaches Jesus because his son is suffering with seizures. And later we find out that a demon is behind this. And we also find out later that the disciples have had a crack at healing this boy but haven't been able to do it. And Jesus' response here seems a bit harsh, doesn't it, when we first read it? If you look at verse 17, Jesus responds and says, You unbelieving and perverse generation, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. Now notice that Jesus isn't rebuking the disciples. 
He's not rebuking the man that's brought his son to be healed. He's rebuking the whole generation for their lack of belief. The generation has no faith. They are unbelieving. And again, this is very similar to the complaints that Moses had about the people of Israel in Exodus, isn't it? How long do I need to put up with this generation of people who aren't going to believe in the God that's saving them? It would seem that the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree here. It's the same issue that the people that Moses faced in the Exodus with the people of Israel not having faith, coming down the mountain, building the golden calf, not trusting in their God. Again, Jesus comes down and finds a lack of faith in his generation. And I think the apple still doesn't fall far from the tree for all of us here. I mean, we just celebrated Christmas. And how many people do you think just celebrated Christmas without even a thought of Jesus or their God? We live in an unbelieving generation. It's the same problem that was in Exodus. It's the problem that Jesus faced in this day. And it's the same problem we have today. People won't believe in the God that's saving them. But here, unlike in Exodus, Jesus' frustration in this generation turns to compassion and he heals the boy. He doesn't bring judgment on the boy, he brings healing. He drives out the demon and the boy is healed. And then naturally the disciples have questions as to why Jesus could perform the healing, but they couldn't because a few chapters ago Jesus told them they had authority to drive out demons. So what's going on here? Why can't we do it? In verse 19, the disciples came to Jesus to say, why couldn't we drive it out? And now the answer Jesus gives here has had different interpretations from different Christians across the years. And it's worth us taking a really deep look at these verses to think about what they mean. So if you read with me in verse 20, we get Jesus' answer. He replied, because you have so little faith... Truly I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Now before we look at verse 20, I just want to note, uh, maybe in your Bibles you see there, uh, in brackets a little 21. I didn't put it there on the handout. There is a little asterisk there. And you notice that there's no verse 21 in this, cha- in this chapter. We go straight from verse 20 to 22. Some translations put 21 in, and it's a bit of a manuscript discrepancy. It would seem that early manuscripts don't have verse 21, but other manuscripts later on include it. And verse 21 is the same ending to the story in Mark. So we have it somewhere else, so they would think that potentially someone has added it here by mistake. At the end of the day, it doesn't make a big change to the story itself. And if you want to talk about manuscript discrepancies and all sorts of things, I'd be happy to chat to you after the service. Come up and we can talk about it. But as we look at verse 20, I can remember reading this verse as a kid. And after reading this verse, we were driving in the car on the way into town and there's a mountain range. And I was probably about 10 And I can remember looking at the mountain range and kind of squinting my eyes and thinking, I'm going to have enough faith. Jesus said, if I have just a mustard seed of faith, I can make the mountains move and try really hard. 
and obviously nothing happened. See, some people read this verse and think that faith is something that you have to conjure up inside yourself to perform miracles and amazing signs. I thought this as a kid. If I only need a mustard seed, surely I can get that much. And sometimes that sort of thought can lead to something silly, like trying to move a mountain as a child. But in other cases, it can lead to serious despair. I want to tell you about a friend that I have whose brother was born with one blind eye. The friend that I have is a Christian. And his belief is that if he had enough faith, his brother's eye would be healed. The problem is that him and his brother just don't have enough faith. God wants to heal him, but they're getting in his way because they don't have faith. And there are whole churches that push this idea that God is always going to heal someone unless we get in his way by not having enough faith in him. And this can be deeply, deeply damaging for people. What happens when the person isn't healed? Who's responsible for that? See, many Christians can treat faith like a kind of substance, this magical substance that we need to conjure up enough of in order to perform amazing miracles. But I don't think that's what Jesus is saying here. And hopefully if we look a little bit closer, we'll actually see that he's actually saying almost the opposite to that. See, I think there's a bit of an issue in the way that the NIV here translates so little faith. See, other translations just simply put it as little faith. And everywhere else in the NIV, in Matthew, the same word is little faith, not so little faith. So I think as you read so little faith, you think it's an issue of quantity, right? There's just simply not enough of the faith. But see, what Jesus is getting at here is not an issue of quantity, but quality. Their faith is a little faith. Here's an example. If I was to say to you, you're just being small-minded. I'm not saying you'll have, you need more minds. You need, you need to have more thoughts. I'm saying, no, the thoughts that you are having aren't the right thoughts. You're being small-minded. Jesus isn't saying, you guys don't have enough of those faith things. He's saying your faith itself is little. It's about the quality of the faith, not the quantity of the faith. It's not that faith is something that we conjure up and we gather it together and we have lots of it and then we can do amazing things. It would seem that maybe the disciples here were you know, trusting in their own abilities to do this healing. They've taken what Jesus said and run with it and gone, awesome, we can do this. If we just believe, we can heal this person and it doesn't work for them. See, faith is not something we conjure up. Faith is having trust in something outside of ourselves, isn't it? To try to conjure up faith would put the trust on ourselves to do it. That's the problem that the people of Israel had in Exodus. While Moses was on top of the mountain with God, they stopped trusting in God. They put faith in themselves, so they conjured up 
an idol, they built an idol and said, well, this will get us through. And the issue here for Jesus is an unbelieving generation. A people that have lost trust in their God and his ability to do amazing things and put the trust in themselves. And again, that can be a danger to us today. We can put emphasis on our faith with a kind of we-can-do-it attitude. We can treat faith a bit like a New Year's resolution that depends on us to be successful, to work hard enough for it to be what it should be. But we know that's not what faith is about. Like I said, faith is trusting in something other than yourself. And in this passage here, in the big picture of what we've just seen, of who Jesus is, faith is trusting in that big picture of Jesus that we just saw. See, in 2023, as we start this new year, we want to have big faith. We want to have a bolsterous, strong faith. But who are we going to depend on in that faith? Are we going to depend on our own ability to conjure it up? Or are we going to have big faith in a big Jesus? As you plan for the year ahead, and you think about your goals for this year, how is it that you're going to be trusting Jesus with those goals? Maybe for some of you, you don't trust Jesus at all. Can I encourage you to consider trusting him, putting your faith in him this year and not yourself? Because we've seen in this passage how glorious he is, the true God come to be with us. So a thing you can ask yourself as you look at the goals you've set, whether it's a New Year's resolution or just goals you have for the year ahead, ask yourself, do they rely on yourself or do they rely on Jesus? Do they bring glory to you or do they bring glory to Jesus? Who's big in that picture? Because we should have a little us and a big Jesus. So I want to give you a moment now. Um, if you've got a pen with you, you can use your outlines. Or if you don't have an outline or a pen, you can use your phone. I want you to just take a moment, I'll give you a minute, to just write down a goal that you have for this year. And as you write it down, I want you to think about how you can trust Jesus with that goal. I'll give you a moment. Think about the goal that you have for this year. And if you don't have a goal yet, think of a goal that you can trust Jesus with this year. But my encouragement to us as a church in 2023 is that our goals, our desires won't be for ourselves. They won't rely on ourselves. But our goals will be to glorify God, to uplift Jesus and to rely on him as we seek to make goals, to make plans for a year ahead. But the truth of all of this is that this is quite hard. It's hard to trust. There's a reason why throughout scripture time and time again people fail to trust God because it's hard and we need his help for that. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray for us that we would help, we would have God's help, that he would help us as we seek to follow him, as we seek to live lives for him this year.
But before I do that, I just want to read to you. I love the response of the man in Mark's account of this story. See, Mark has the same story in his account, in his gospel. And in that story, Jesus challenges the man about if he has enough belief in him to heal his son. And the man responds to Jesus with these words. Lord, I do believe. Help me overcome my belief. I do believe, Lord. Help me overcome my unbelief. And how about we pray for God's help as we seek to believe in him? Lord God, we do believe in you. Lord, we believe in Jesus and who he is. Lord, we believe he is your son. Lord, your glory, your very presence, you with us. But Lord, it's hard to believe that at times. Lord, we need your help to trust you. We don't want to go astray. We don't want to have faith in ourselves this year. Lord, we want to have faith in you and what you can do. Would you help us, Lord, in our unbelief this year and right now? We pray this all for your glory and in Jesus' name. Amen.